T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Sports Talk Saturday on WGR. Sports Radio 550. All right, welcome back to Sports Talk Saturday, Hour 2 underway. Nate Corey, Corey Griswold hanging out with you for the next two hours going to the Western Hotline because we got golf to talk is my man Brian Koziel. He's the host of Tita Green, Sabres pre-intermission uh, and post-game shows. Brian, uh, welcome, my friend, and happy Saturday to you. Yes, happy Saturday. Beautiful day out. And uh U.S. Open is already underway. There's like... 12 hours of TV coverage today. It's On national TV, nonetheless. Like, you don't have to have one of those, like, you know, you don't have to have PGA Tour Live or ESPN Plus. Like, you can just tune on Channel 2 right now and watch, like, 10 straight hours of coverage. It's fantastic. And it's what's great, too. I know, you know, we value our summertime and beautiful weather here in Western New York for obvious reasons. And the fact that the leaders aren't going to tee off yes. until <laughs> 4.35 – I mean, you re- you really are going to get to watch what is going to be a lot of the good stuff here. You know, seven, eight, nine, yep. ten o'clock. It's going to be really good. Fantastic, which is great for me because I got a tea time tomorrow on Father's Day at three p.m. And I thought to myself, what did I do? But it was the only available tea time, and I'm thinking to myself, the the leaders aren't going to even be teeing off until I'm on like the sixth hole. So we're good to go here. Um, there is some freaking storylines, Brian. Like I going into this uh, weekend, I probably put together. Uh, 10 fan duel lineups and I can tell you that it's going to end up being about $30 wasted because I certainly did not have Russell Henley, uh, Bubba Watson, uh, Mackenzie Hughes. Uh, I mean, I actually, actually did put Kevin Streelman in one or two of those, but I guess my point is what a remarkable top of this leaderboard going into a weekend and you don't really have any of the top players in the world anywhere to be found. Matt Wolf hasn't played in a while, but he's at the top. Louis Oosthuizen shows up for majors. We know how that goes. John Rahm's up there and tied for fifth. But this is a fair. This is uncharted territory at the top of this leaderboard. Well, you have a guy on the top of the leaderboard in Bland that is 48 years old, and based upon his age, he would have been a big story. Thinking, could he be the oldest person ever to win a major? Julius Boros was like 48 and a half, and this guy, 48 in like eight months, he would have been even older. He would have possibly have a chance to set the record. No, there's still two rounds to go, and my prediction is that he doesn't stick around. Right. But Phil Mickelson, of course, winning a month ago at the PGA, all that is mute. Mickelson 51 when he ends up winning the PGA. So that uh, ended up changing that quite a bit here as uh, he obviously had a historic win at the PGA Championship, but 
I mean, boy, what a trend we're seeing here. Older players, guys that don't necessarily hit it 350 off the tee, guys that necessarily don't look like they could be professional wrestlers, are competing on the world's toughest courses on the biggest stages. So I guess it's a good sign for golf because I would say probably, Nate, and you and I had conversations about this on air, over the last calendar year, the big topic was about Bryson DeChambeau mm-hmm. and how far can you hit the ball and is he going to ruin golf and our golf course is not going to be able to keep up and all that sort of stuff. Well, look, you're ha- you had a 51-year-old win the PGA and now you've got a 48-year-old who, by the way, now, now Mickelson does hit it far. you know. For, he does, yeah. In, uh, especially for his age. Bland does not hit it far uh, comparably to the rest of the field. He hits it farther than you and I. But, sure, right. Um, <laughs> yeah. But for PGA Tour standards, he uh, he's a shorter hitter. But, man, it's all about accuracy for him, and it's all about making putts. The, my favorite stat about Bland is, well, there's two good ones. First of all, 478 starts, I believe, of professional golf, a decent amount of it on the European tour, and he finally got a win earlier this year at the British, Ma- British Masters, and that's what elevated him through skipping a few rounds of qualifying to get into this U.S. Open. He had only played in one other U.S. Open in 2009 at Bethpage Black. So for him, this is obviously a cool story that he persevered, got his first win at age 48, essentially after being you know, a career professional, so that's a cool story. But now this week, why is he performing well? Well, yes, he's been accurate off the tee, but how about this stat, Nate? And here's a stat that we would all love to have as a golfer. Ten feet and in, he's the only player not to miss a putt yeah, this week insane. on these tricky, fast greens. He's 31 for 31, ten feet and in. That's incredible. Think about it. Take the easiest putt on your golf course. Make it perfectly straight or whatever break you want it, whatever speed you want it. Try and make 31 in a row. I, I guarantee you, you won't be able to do it. I know I couldn't do it. 31 straight, the exact same putt. This guy on these greens with these breaks and this speed is 31 for 31 from 10 feet and in. That's why he's on top. That's crazy to me. And and listen, I've got like five other players I want to touch on here. But before I do that, I, I think talking about the course makes sense when you're thinking about kind of who's at the top here and you're talking about some of the statistics that are maybe winning the day. And I keep hearing guys like Faldo, in particular Faldo, who has played at this course, who has won, you know, who's played in U.S. Opens. I keep hearing the term like boring golf, right? Like, I think you have to sort of have this level of. I'm a flatliner, and you know what? You got look at the guys at the top: the Ustazins, the John Roms, the Xander Shifleys. These guys are patient. They they're consistent off the tee. Um, they don't make a lot of poor golf shots. They don't put themselves, you know, in position where you know you've got to lay up out of the thick rough, and you've got to be, you know. Essentially, my point is this course, when you look at the scorecard, this isn't a course with a lot of turns. This isn't a course that features like crazy obstructions and, you know, you can't see the pin. There isn't blind tee shots. Like, this is a course that plays straight. 
and there is sand traps on each side, and there's really high rough. It is, if you can keep it in the fairway, and you can get greens in regulation, you're going to be rewarded. And I think, I think the guys at the top are really starting to to show a trend that maybe the guys that are the the go-for-it guys, the guys that are that, that play the riskier golf shots, I'm thinking Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Kepka, right? Like, these are guys that play riskier golf shots because they have it in the arsenal. Maybe that's not the game that, that puts you in the best position to win this tournament at this course, the way that it's playing. I've heard a few golfers say this week that the course is fair and hard, but they said they were using the frame or the term like it's in front of me. Like I know exactly what it is. I know where safe is. I know where trouble is. I know if I hit it here, what I'm going to have next. He's like, there's no tricks to it. So I, I think you're right. We've seen some other unique layout venues in major championships here over the past handful of years. Uh, Kiwa Island, a really cool look with a whole bunch of different sandy areas and everything like that. But, I mean, yeah, this is traditional, just straight down. you got to hit it straight. you got to hit it on the green. you got to avoid the rough around the green. And uh, I, I think this course, you're right, it's not flashy for sure. And I think partially, too, you know, we Kiwa Island was so beautiful on the eyes that maybe people are thinking, like, hey, this one, maybe you use the word boring. Like, people are saying that. It, I mean, it, it's just a traditional golf course. That's what it is. And I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily boring. It's just you have to play a more, I guess I would say, stable sort of game in order to succeed here. And that's why we're seeing maybe Bland's have success, Henley has success. Ustazen is not a flashy player. He plays as steady as almost anybody on tour. And that's why he's always seeming to be around in contention in majors. So it's not a surprise that he's there. Um, there is, though, that group today that I think is going to have to play that riskier golf that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Look look at the names that are five shots back at even. DeChambeau, Kepka, Thomas, Morikawa. I think there's even more there that I'm missing. I know those are at least the four that I'm off the top of my head here that are right there. Five shots back. Bland and Henley, like just, okay, does the moment get to him? Does getting to the weekend, being in the final group, do they come back a little like even if you say they come back a shot or two today, all right, can you make up two or three to give yourself a real chance tomorrow? I'm curious to see how aggressive Bryson and JT and Brooks play today. Morikawa, who we know can win a major two. How do they play today? How aggressive? Do they try to push it a little to see if they can get up the board? Uh, because if they can be within three or less going into tomorrow, then they got to feel really good about themselves. Yeah, and you know, I, the the guy I really want to talk about here for a second, Brian, is Russell Henley, because I, I saw an article um, that basically started with the headline of two journeymen at the top of the leaderboard in Richard Bland and Russell Henley, and I'm thinking to myself, journeyman? I'm like, Henley's 32 years old. He's still rather young in his career, but this guy, it's made $17 million over the course of his career. Like, this isn't a journeyman. I think this is just a guy that's maybe not been... Maybe he just hasn't been at the top of leaderboards at the biggest events. But I, I would maybe refrain from from labeling Russ Henley if you don't follow a lot of golf and maybe this is not a name that's a household name for you. But calling him a journeyman, I, I, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm there with Henley. I think he's, he's played a great first two rounds. He's got himself in a great position in the weekend here. Um, but a journeyman, I don't know, Brian. He's, I mean, everybody peaks at different ages for sure. I mean. Phil, I'm not comparing Henley to Mickelson, but remember Phil took a long while to figure out his game to win a major. 
I mean, he won majors at an older age and then has continued to obviously flourish ever since. But certain guys get it in their 20s. Certain guys wait till their 30s to get it. And some guys play their best golf in their 40s or even 50s. It's not even professionals necessarily, but anybody listening that's an amateur. You might be playing your best golf right now at age 50 because you just figured it out. So the PGA Tour is so deep. What probably is labeled as, well, he hasn't won a major, so we'll call him a journeyman. You know, it's probably because it's it's the field is so deep right now. So I think that's why you're hearing your label. And yeah, I mean, maybe it is is necessarily not the best description for Russell Henley, but um, this is a guy that also is an accurate player. So maybe not a surprise that he's thriving in this sort of atmosphere where you have to be accurate and you have to limit your mistakes. Um, I, to me, the U.S. Open in years where there isn't what I would consider to be those unfair or tricked out conditions where you uh, I hit a great golf shot and you're still not rewarded. Those are the times that I think the U.S. Open can become bothersome or annoying to watch. Uh, this year, I think it's totally set up fine in the sense that, look, when somebody hits a great shot, they're going to make birdie or have a chance to make an eagle or a birdie. And when somebody hits a poor shot, they're going to be punished. And I think that's ultimately what the USGA wants. There's some years where it's gotten so out of hand that it's made the tournament ridiculous and you've even heard players be outspoken about it but uh, you haven't heard anybody complain about conditions or anything being unfair uh, and I think that's what you're going to see this weekend is okay who can just be the tactician and strategize their way around the course there are some holes that you can make birdies on here too and they've got a par five to finish on 18 over water we know all the drama that Tiger Woods and Rocco Mediate had here when the open was here in 08 so you still could end up with some sort of fantastic finish here and uh, I, I think some of the course getting some bum raps, I, I think it might be a little out of line just because maybe it's not as flashy as some of the other courses we've seen. Uh, Brian Koza here on the Western Hotline. Talk a little U.S. Open action. Um, is Rory McIlroy the most frustrating player that maybe you've ever watched? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought McIlroy, if he could figure out his first round disasters and not put himself out of it in day one you got to give himself an opportunity now he's plus one entering today that's only six back and there's not a ton of golfers in between but there's a ton of decent golfers big time major winners in that group that's an even that group that's like two and three under with rom and uh, shoffley and those other groups there those other guys so like yes he's going to have to push a little today. Aggressive Rory is maybe one of the most fun players to watch in golf. When Rory is going at pins and trying to drive the ball, he, when he drives the ball and he's locked in, I think he's as good as anybody in the game. Uh, but if you look at McElroy's scorecard from yesterday, six pars total in 18 holes. So it was a lot of what we've been seeing out of Rory. Bogey, bogey, oh, birdie, birdie, and then a bogey, then a birdie. Oh, he'll sneak in a par in there. It's just he has got to just avoid the trouble. If he can do that, I, he's talented enough to make six or seven birdies in any of these rounds. That's how good he is. He just has not been able to avoid also going the other way. And that's been his issue here probably for the last five years, which is why we haven't seen him win a major since. Um, Brian, before I let you go, I, the the last uh, two guys I'd like to talk about are uh, Xander Shifley and Bubba Watson. Obviously, Bubba has uh, a pair of majors uh, under his belt already, but uh, Shifley is um, is a player who is sort of on the precipice of greatness, and I think he seems like the kind of player that right now 
he gets that first major, and I think we're talking about a guy in the next two or three years that's going to be mentioned in the in the Kepkas, um, you know, I mean, say what you will, but Rory. Um, and, like, I think he is one of those top players in the world, but he just hasn't broken through yet. Is do do you think? I mean, he's he's three shots, uh, th- uh, three strokes behind the leader in a very good position. Um, do you like his chances this week and uh, or this weekend, I should say? And and are, are you in agreement that that like he's a major away from maybe really being considered one of the top golfers in the world? I think so. I think that he, to me, right now, if you said, give me a name or two of who are the best golfers in the world, but they haven't won a major, I'm probably going Rahm and Shoffley as my first two. And, you know, maybe John Rahm, because he's got a little more flair, people might put him first. But Shoffley's been almost just as successful. Shoffley's trying a new putting grip. He actually has spoken out against locking the left arm against the putter. But he says as long as it's legal, he goes, I don't don't hold a grudge against anybody that's doing it, and now he's doing it. So if you watch Sanders Shoffley play this week, look at the fact he has a new putting grip. If that kind of feels good for him and he putts well, uh, he can win this tournament. He's obviously sitting right there in a great position. So uh, he's been there before. He's had a chance to win an Open Championship. He obviously made that run at Matsuyama this year when Matsuyama had that one tough hole at the 15th at Augusta. He could have actually been in a chance to win Augusta, at Augusta National and win a major at the Masters. So uh, he's right on the doorstep. I agree with you. He's going to get one here very, very soon. And maybe this is the week for him if his putting and his new technique for putting comes through for him. What I wanted to ask you about Bubba is just that I, I think for the better part of his career, he's been at least it's this is something that I've noticed just with, you know, friends who follow golf. And, you know, we kind of will, you know, we've all kind of got players that we like, that we talk about, that we support, that we follow. Um, I've always I don't want to say call myself like a closet Bubba fan, but I've always really liked Bubba, and I love his I love his approach to the game. I think it's unique how he uh, shapes the ball, how he has fun while he's playing, and for whatever reason, somewhere along the way, he's rubbed people the wrong way, and and he comes out and um, you know uh, after his first round um, is talking a little bit about um, some of the mental health stuff that and 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 Matt Wolf said the same thing. They're kind of talking about opening up, being or just. Being being very transparent about some of the struggles that he's had. And and I think that now that Bubba has sort of gotten through the youth of his career, I think he's a far more likable player. But I've always really liked Bubba, and I'm just kind of wondering where you think he is at this point of his career with, you know, Masters, he's got green jackets. And I'm just wondering, like, if he's in contention in this tournament, is he going to be a guy that I think maybe more people root for at this point in his career than maybe a couple years ago? I think so. The fact that he came out this week and supported Matthew Wolf, I think, is going to go a long way amongst his players. Uh, Matthew Wolf, the young player who, by the way, is one shot off the lead, finished second last year at the U.S. Open. Uh, the guy with the, if you don't know who Matthew Wolf is, he's the guy with the huge hitch in his swing before he starts. The young guy from Oklahoma State. Um, he spoke in support of Matthew Wolf about the stress of being a professional golfer and what it's been like for him through now a decade or so of playing uh, Watson is because Matthew Wolf said. Part of his struggles that he had earlier in this year was mental health issues. And Matthew Wolf has said, look, I, I'm not saying this for me, for publicity. He goes, I'm saying this just to kind of show support to everybody else. Like, yeah, I, it's, I'm having this too. So Watson came out this weekend and was really supportive of that, saying that he has been dealing with some of that throughout the course of his career. For Watson, golf-wise, if he's able to get a major beyond the Masters, 
I think that really kind of puts him up in the next echelon of mm. greats. The golf course at Augusta sets up great. We know for lefties, he loves that course. There's no rough. He can bomb it all over the place and kind of get away with it a little more than he can in other majors. He went on and win a, a U.S. Open, too. Now you're, you're talking about an elite career yeah. to win a mass, two Masters and a U.S. Open. I mean, that's totally two different setups and two different conditions. And Watson does have fun. He shapes the ball more than anybody. He, you see he hit driver off the deck yeah, yesterday and I got a par it. five and two. Freaking love um, it. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> Just, that's pretty sweet. Yeah. I don't know if I would suggest that for us no. amateurs to hit driver off the no, deck. No, definitely not. <laughs> and definitely not. Not 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 at a U.S. Open. That, But that again, I yeah. think it's part of my argument of what makes him so so fun um, for especially younger guys. He's self-taught. Yeah. He, has, he did not have like a private instructor growing up. And that's where he came up with these, this very unique shot of like, you know, I'm going to aim one fairway over and it's going to end up back where I want it. And then I'm going to do it on the next hole. I'm going to aim the other fairway. And you know, know Brian, side, the right side. I think Bubba is a good example of how the game is changing. And, and Bubba, Matthew Wolf, these young players, I'm, I'm not necessarily calling Bubba young at this point in his career. He's definitely been around, but like, 15, 20, 30 years ago, you know, you're not being taught a lot of different varied ways on how to swing and make contact with the, with the golf ball. Now, I think there is way more patience. There's more variety with how coaches, it's basically find the easiest way to generate swing speed and slot the club and and, and go for it. And I think there's way less of you, your swing needs to fit this particular mold and more of a free thinking way of, of how to approach your golf swing. And I think as we move towards the future of golf, I think it becomes more inclusive that way where you don't just have to have this pure swing, this Tiger or Rory swing. You can have hitches. You can have different ways to swing the golf club as long as you can create that swing speed and, and slot the club. I love what you're saying. It's a, we, Jeff Metis and I this morning on Tee to Green, we had the exact same conversation. We said, okay, look at the, next, look, look at the, the two golfers that are at minus four and the two golfers that are at minus three. You couldn't have four different yeah. style swings. You have Ustazen, who's smooth as butter. Maybe, probably, I guess you'd label the most classic swing out of the group here that I'm talking about. Then you've got Wolf at minus four, that huge sw- uh, hitch to start his swing. And then, of course, he's almost not even on his toes when he hits it. He's so high off the ground. And then the next two that are at three under, you've got Bubba, we've talked about him, shaping the ball in crazy fashion. And then John Rahm, who's got... A compact swing mm-hmm. barely takes the club back, but generates so much power. I mean, there's four guys all that could win this week, four totally different swings for each other that are all different compared to each other. So uh, I think your point's great. Jeff and I talked about it this morning with those four, and uh, you're right. It shows you don't have to fit a certain way of doing it to be successful, even at the highest level. All right, Brian, appreciate you, my friend. Enjoy this great, great weekend of golf. I know you'll probably get out at least one of those times. I'm getting out for Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to you as well. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk soon, man. We'll definitely get out uh, as well in the next week or two. Awesome. Will do. Happy Father's Day to all the dads, and appreciate it, Nathan. Enjoy the golf, too. Thanks, man. Uh, Brian Cozy there on the Western Hotline. Got to take a time out. I got Mike Leone. He's the Director of Analytics for Established Room. We're going to talk some fantasy football. That's coming up next year on WGR. 
Light up your 4th of July with Tribal Thunder Fireworks at Jan Smoke Shop 2. Stop driving to Pennsylvania to overpay for the same fireworks you can get locally. Get the real deal, all tax-free, and only at Jan Smoke Shop 2 in Gasmart on Bloomdale Road in Akron. Now, it's so easy to listen to WGR Sports Radio 550 in any room in your house. Simply ask your smart speaker to play WGR 550. All right, welcome back to Sports Talk Saturday. It's almost, well, in some cases for me, in like three of my five dynasty leagues uh, for rookie drafts, I've already done three of them. Uh, But for those who are, uh, who don't, you know, love football as much as me, who don't want to do their rookie fantasy draft right after the actual draft and you're waiting closer to the regular season, my next guest should help us uh, maneuver through some of these rookie picks. We'll get into talking about uh, normal roster and redraft leagues as well. But joining me on the Western Hotline is Mike Leone. Mike is the director of analytics over at Establish the Run. Uh, Mike, good morning to you, or well, good afternoon at this point to you. But thanks for joining me, man. I'm uh, I'm excited to talk some fantasy football with you. I've been um, I've been scheming. I've got a couple of uh, my own personal. I- I'm going to be selfish on the show, and I'm going to help myself in fantasy by bringing you on. But that's that's what you're here for, right, man? Yeah, that's what I'm here for. And sometimes the selfish questions are the best ones. That's right. Everyone kind of has the uh, the same sort of conundrums that they face in their drafts. So listen, you know, I um, my fantasy, uh, the, the league that I'm the commissioner in, um, I forced the league to draft like one week after the actual NFL draft. Um, I really like the idea. I think it, it forces a little, uh, not only that, but listen, I've got a bunch of draft content creators in that draft. If they can't figure out who to draft, then that's on them. Um, you know, so like I, this isn't a novice group of, of guys that we're playing fantasy football with. They all write about the draft. So I think they, they're in a position where they can make edu- good educated guesses, but at this point, going into now that we know we, we've kind of gone through voluntary workouts and OTAs, I want to ask you about rookie running backs because I think this group is interesting because I'm not I'm not exactly sure outside of Najee Harris like where the hierarchy of these running backs go. And, and I'm almost of the mind that Trey Sermon has more value than maybe even I wanted to give him like a month or so ago when I made my draft picks. But um, talk to me a little bit about these rookie running backs and maybe how you tier them. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, a downgrade from last year's rookie class, which was absolutely loaded at the running back position. As you said, Najee Harris is the clear number one because he's stepping into a workload where he's just going to see 90% of the touches in Pittsburgh. I'm a, a little skeptical over Harris's big playability and how efficient that offense can be, but at the end of the day, volume's going to make, you know, the most profit in fantasy football. After him, I think Travis Etienne's the clear number two back. He's very explosive back. I understand he's entering a situation where James Robinson carried a huge workload last year, but Robinson was an undrafted free agent. It's a new regime. They have no ties to him. And even if Robinson gets some of the kind of useless carries, like the low-value touches between the 20s, we're not too concerned. We really like ATN's ability to you know, score from distance and be involved in the passing game. And then after him... I think Javante Williams is pretty close. Mm. He's another guy where I think people, you can't overrate the landing spot, especially in dynasty situations change so quickly that you kind of want to look at the talent and like the longer term death chart. So short term, obviously Melvin Gordon is ahead of him, but I mean, that could flip really quickly. That could flip as soon as this year. And then going into next year, it's likely all Javante Williams backfield. And he's another guy that's not super explosive, but 
he rates really well on pro football focus's broken tackle metric. I know they believe that is one of the stickiest metrics going from college to the pro game. So, and he can catch passes. I think, I think that's an underrated part of his game because he split in the backfield in college with Michael Carter, mm-hmm. uh, who went to the Jets. And Michael Carter is a great pass catcher. And it's one of those situations where I think that was held against Javante Williams, maybe, that he didn't catch as many passes. But it wasn't so much due to his skill set as Michael Carter was just a really good pass catcher. So those are the clear top three. And then Sermon's knocking on the door yeah. with Javante Williams, who you mentioned. Just an absolutely great landing spot for him. And I, I said not to overrate the situation, but it's tough not to overrate the San Francisco 49ers situation because – the run game is just so efficient. It fits what Sermon does well. Even if he's splitting carries with Raheem Mostert, the efficiency is going to be so high. You're going to get a ton of spike weeks out of him. And not only that, Mike, I mean, add in, sprinkle in the fact that Mozart really hasn't shown the ability to stay healthy. Um, Jeffrey yeah. Wilson, who is the other guy that you might think could poach some carries and, and really has been, a, I think, maybe underrated um, and super efficient when he's healthy, also has offseason surgery, not healthy. So the situation really could come down for Sermon that – the other guys around him, although maybe they're in better positions to see more volume, simply won't be available to get that volume. Yeah, exactly. And I also view this a little bit as an arbitrage on the Baltimore Ravens run game. If you look at you know the ADPs of J.K. Dobbins, Gus Edwards, J.K. Dobbins goes in the third round of regular drafts. Uh, Gus Edwards goes in the tenth round. I think you're going to see similar efficiency out of this San Francisco 49ers backfield, especially once Trey Lance takes over where this run game is going to put up similar fantasy points as the Baltimore backfield. Yet, if you look at the ADPs of Raheem Mostert, of Trey Sermon, it's coming at you know much more depressed value than what you have to pay for to get the Baltimore running back. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting conundrum at running back. And the other guy I kind of wanted to just um, get an add on there is Michael Carter, um, who you mentioned the, the Jets don't really have much in that backfield. They didn't really, outside of Tevin Coleman, who is another San Francisco defector who just simply can't seem to stay healthy. Um, what do you like about his potential this year in that offense? I don't really have a good feel about how Wilson will use the running backs in the pass-catching game. That's probably, I mean, from the sounds of it anyways, maybe where you see hit most of his value as a pass-catcher out of the backfield, but I think it's not totally out of the realm of possibilities that he's close to being a feature back um, in New York by like midseason. Yeah, I think he was already running with the ones, obviously, super early in the offseason. That's a good sign. He is a conundrum because if you're trying not to overrate situation, you know, it's a fourth round running back that maybe we didn't think super highly of coming into the draft. Yet he does, if we know historically, the most profitable backfields in fantasy, especially in redraft, are the ambiguous backfields where we don't really know who's going to emerge. That uncertainty scares everyone away, and you can take advantage of that uncertainty by taking shots at it. And right now, the shot to take would be Michael Carter. His pass-catching skill set is a really nice fallback. It creates a nice floor for him where if Tevin Coleman ends up being the primary two-down back, a pass-catching back like Michael Carter is still going to hold value. And then if Michael Carter does end up as that workhorse back, it's profit from day one, you know, just because of his cost right now. You're talking house money, man. Middle of the second round. Yeah, you're playing with house money, middle of the second round in rookie draft. So, uh, yeah, I think he's good. It's kind of a clear pecking order with these tier breaks, you know, with Najee. Then you've got a tier of 
maybe Etienne and Williams, then Sermon, then Carter. I do like Kenny Gainwell if you're like mm. deeper in yeah. your rookie drafts in the third round. As someone who was really explosive in college, obviously had some injury issues, but I think you know, this is a guy who was keeping, you know, Antonio Gibson off the field at times in college. And he enters the Philadelphia situation where I mentioned that pass catching role is a nice fallback. I think Gainwell uh, and Sirianni there has already mentioned Gainwell is kind of like a Naheem Hines comp. Uh, Sirianni coming over from the Indianapolis Colts where they split backs quite a bit. They use Hines a ton in the passing game, but also uh, some pretty good rush efficiency out of him. Miles Sanders was really bad in yards per outrun the last couple of seasons. Not completely his fault, but you could see a situation where Miles Sanders is more of a two-down back and you know someone has to take that third-down role. And if Kenny Gainwell can leapfrog Boston Scott on the depth chart, you know, I don't think that's a huge task, especially with the new regime there. Uh, he's someone that in the third round where things start to get dicey, I like taking a swing at him. Uh, Mike Leone here on the Wester Hotline. is the director of analytics of Establish the Run, a great, great fantasy publication. Um, if you haven't checked it out yet, you should. Um, I want to talk about wide receivers, too, here, because I think this is another interesting position group, especially at the tops of drafts. And In, in my drafts in particular, Mike, um, everyone really values running backs and quarterbacks. In particular, my league, it's a super flex league, so that means the quarterback is maybe... Uh, no, I, I mean, it is. It is the most sought-after position. Guys like Andy Dalton are getting crazy, crazy, crazy budgets thrown at him. Um, you know, got Tyrod Taylors of the world. Like these are guys that are being fought over in our league because there's such a need for you guys in that super flex position to be able to produce more than you know 12 or 15 points a game. So the wide receiver position I found in my league definitely saw some kickbacks. We saw some guys fall, but for the most part, the order was very simple. It was Chase, it was Waddle. And then it was Devonta Smith. And I'm sort of wondering where you think Devonta Smith fits in in terms of production in year one. And are maybe people in choosing Waddle over Smith, more so, especially in the dynasty outlook, maybe putting banking too much into Waddle's future production and maybe overlooking Devonta Smith's immediate and maybe prolonged production he could see walking into a situation where he's going to be the number one wide receiver. Yeah, I've got them pretty close in redraft leagues and in dynasty. I do have Waddle ahead of Devonta Smith. Devonta Smith is this outlier type player where at his size, and we're talking sub 170 pounds, historically these guys just have had a difficult time producing at the NFL level. That's changing a little bit as offenses create more space, you know, as these lacks kind of the defensive uh, penalties. So, I, I mean, I, I don't think he's someone you should cast off, but I do worry that he's getting overdrafted a little bit in rookie drafts just based on that really good draft capital with Philadelphia. So I'm actually a little bit more on the Jalen Waddle mm. side. Uh, I like how his big playability fits in with this Miami offense. I think we might be underrating Tua a little bit because he had such a disappointing rookie year, but it's excuses, but like good reasons that you can paint sure. for why Tua struggled between – you know, the off-season hip injury, and uh, he mentioned himself, which is his own fault, but not knowing the playbook as well as he should have. So entering year two, he's got a lot of weapons at his disposal. The Miami team that, when Ryan Fitzpatrick was playing well for them, they were pretty pass-heavy. You know, they were one of the, they had a pretty high pass rate over expectation. So I think they can feed a lot of mouths here, and I don't think Waddle needs a huge target share to get there with his skill set. So I do prefer Waddle. 
to Devonta Smith. But you mentioned, man, the Superflex tight end premium rookie drafts this year are absolutely loaded with all the rookie quarterbacks mm-hmm. you have and with Kyle Pitts. That I do think there's an edge if you haven't had your rookie draft yet. If someone's really chomping at the bit to get one of these early picks, the back end of round one, early round two, I think there's a lot of value, and it's undervalued where you can just kind of take Oh, sorry, I dropped off there for a second. Okay, good. Um, you, you, can, you can take your pick of guys like Rondell Moore, Elijah Moore, Elijah Rashad yeah. Bateman, um, Terrace Marshall. That, that, that tier of four guys right there I think is really undervalued that if you're willing to trade down and someone's going to overpay to trade up, I think that's a really smart way to play your rookie draft, especially if you're in a deeper league where you, know, you need a little bit more depth. I'm just absolutely furiously worried about Elijah Moore. I, I, he was a guy that I really thought could be in play for the Bills in, their, in, in the first round. Obviously, mm-hmm. they, go, they go another direction and they go, end up going edge, but like I like, uh, from everything you've heard from um, you know, connected Jets reporters from OTAs, this seems like a guy that's going to have a day one. Um, he's he's going to have an impact from day one, but I, I, I want to you know, I want to talk a little bit outside of just rookies in this situation. still has a bit of a rookie feel to it, but I'm interested in your take on the Cincinnati Bengals pass catching situation because I think you know Jamar Chase is going to be the wide receiver number one there. Um, where do you fall with T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd? Because here's my here's the interesting dynamic of all this. I think there's enough volume to make a case for all of them in this pass game. I think that they're gonna you know there there is going to be that. Now I guess the question becomes is how healthy is Joe Burrow to start the season, but. I traded Tyler Boyd in a league. Um, I think I, I got Mike Davis in return, the running back out of Atlanta. My running back situation was was bad, and I needed someone that I think could fill in for a year or two that's going to get volume, and I think that's him. But I, it really took all of me to part ways with Tyler Boyd. But at the end of the day, my justification was Chase and T. Higgins are wide receiver one and two. He's the slot. He showed that rapport with Burrow last year, but I think you know Chase walks in with a rapport with Burrow. How do you figure out where the volume goes in that offense trying to predict that for this year? Yeah, it's it's obviously really difficult to predict. You know, you've got a sophomore in T. Higgins who broke out as a rookie, and, you know, sky kind of seems the limit for him. And then you bring in Jamar Chase, who's you know, arguably the best wide receiver prospect we've seen since Amari Cooper. And it's tough, but if I take a step back, I'm just really high on this offense in general, particularly from a fantasy standpoint. The line, if it goes bad, it's Burroughs' health in the offensive line. Mm. Um, those are, the, you know, the known risks here. But as far as upside, you compare this offense to the Dallas Cowboys last year. Both these offenses ran a ton of plays. They're fast-paced, up-tempo offenses. The Bengals, in terms of pass rate, were really high last year. And part of that had to do to game script. But even after you count for game script, almost every week their pass rate over expectation, so compared to what we thought it would be based on game script, was high. So I think there's going to be a lot of total volume in this passing game, and then I think it's going to get squeezed in these three guys. So it might look bad at first glance, like which of these three guys is it going to be, but you don't really have a tight end to worry about. You've got a clear-cut three guys. I think it could be a situation like Carolina Panthers last year where we saw DJ Moore, Robbie Anderson, Curtis Samuel all do pretty well from a fantasy standpoint because they saw, you know, sixty six percent of their team's target, something like that. So I'm pretty high on all three. You know, I've definitely got Chase one, T two, and then Boyd behind that as the third guy. Um, and one other underrated aspect of offense is like this. 
if you've got T. Higgins and you're worried about Jamar Chase, well, Jamar Chase is going to make this offense run more efficiently. That's going to help T. Higgins. And if there's an injury to T. Higgins or Tyler Boyd, all of a sudden, uh, or I'm sorry, an injury to Chase or Tyler Boyd, all of a sudden this target share we were worried about from day one, not, now it's you know wheels up for T. Higgins. He can command all the targets. So sometimes we overthink like the exact divvying up of target shares uh, from day one, and it's kind of funny this came up because I think last year when we first talked earlier in the offseason, I was a little bit down on Stephon Diggs mm-hmm. coming to Buffalo for the same reason. Luckily, by the end of the offseason, I kind of got on him, but you know, the idea there is are these guys talent-wise, can they earn a big target share? There's a lot of chaos that happens over the course of the NFL season. Let's sort of like not overthink day one exactly what we think is going to happen because you know, there's going to be a lot of variance there. Mike, last thing I have for you is I think there's a really – Arizona, <laughs> that offense – uh, the barrage of weapons, both aging and disappointing over the last couple of fantasy seasons, James Conner and, and A.J. Green maybe most notably, and then they go out and they draft more. Uh, what do you make of how that – is there – maybe this is the question I should ask. Is there anybody outside of DeAndre Hopkins that you think has carries any potential to be – and let's just maybe talk about this year in redraft leagues. Let's not, let's not look for the, the dynasty perspective on this, but like in a redraft format, is there anyone worth drafting outside of DeAndre Hopkins? Yeah, I know it's a redraft question, but I'm still probably going to bet on the younger talent and Rondell Moore there. Okay. And I look at A.J. Green. If you looked at – Quotes from Cliff Kingsbury, it seems like they plan to use A.J. Green as kind of an every-down guy on the outside. I'm skeptical how long that lasts. He was really, really bad in Mm -hmm. yards throughout run last season. I think he was like over 100th out of 112 qualified wide receivers. And, you know, the the age model does not like A.J. Green. And then Christian Kirk just seems a little bit buried there. Uh, So I'm looking at Rondell Moore, who... I think he fits in scheme-wise. This is a team that throws, you know, we kind of joke that it's the horizontal air raid because Kyler Murray has such a low average depth of target, yeah. but that's what Rondell Moore does. You know, he was basically a running back in college, but just via the passing game. And I think he's going to be, he's got a, this upside to just catch a ton of balls and create after the catch and like maybe a little bit underrated deep play upside too. So uh, generally, when it's a muddled situation like this, I'll go with the uncertainty, the younger guy that has a little bit more upside. And in Rondell's case, I think he fits the scheme in particular here. Michael, you've given me a lot to think about over the next couple of weeks as drafts uh, start to get underway. My favorite league that I'm in uh, is one that we started junior year of high school um, and is running uh, almost a decade and a half strong right now. And uh, it's a redraft league, a one-keeper redraft league. And uh, I traded my first-round pick last year to move up for uh, for some some assets going into the playoffs. And it's just it's one of the more fun leagues. Uh, and you've given me so much good ammunition. Hopefully none of my, uh, none of my league members were listening. But I appreciate you as always, my friend. Thanks for hopping on. Love the insight. Love the work you guys are doing over at Establish the Run. Appreciate you as always, and we'll talk again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Nate. Appreciate it. Awesome. Mike Leone there of Establish the Run. He's a director of analytics. You can follow him on Twitter. Two hats, one mic. Time out. When we come back, I've got to take another break, and then we'll have Matt Perino join us. We're going to talk more Bills OTAs, maybe a little Cole Beasley. Got a whole bunch coming up next here on WGR. Stay connected to our shows and get in on the conversation. Follow us on Twitter at WGR550. Uh, Matt Perino, 
of New York Upstate is going to join us on the other side of this quick break. Don't go anywhere. You know I don't utilize the last 10 minutes of every hour. I don't know what to tell you guys, but it's so that I can get the first 50 minutes or so of uninterrupted, brilliant, smart-sounding sports talk. And that's what I bring you during the first 50 minutes. So I don't know what to say other than you're welcome. So time out. On the other side, Matt Perino joins us here on WGR. WGR Sports Radio 550. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.